This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. The impact of redistricting on black and brown people. But redistricting is about drawing fair lines so that there's one person, one vote. But Prentice Haney, co-executive director of the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, says that's not what's happening. The issue then becomes when special interest groups or politicians are trying to break down the ability for regular people to have their interests uh, reflected, and specifically Black and brown folks in the U.S. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Climate change. In the United States in particular, the harm is happening on communities of color. Elizabeth Chun-Hei Lee is the Executive for Economic and Environmental Justice and the Climate at the United Women in Faith Organization. We may be the women that you you see in the church pews, organizing bake sales, leading Bible studies, Sunday schools. uh, Women, Women like my mother. Yes. And they're urging communities of color to pay attention to the climate change discussion. Climate change is an injustice multiplier or a threat multiplier. And we see that being played out around our racial justice and inequities in the United States. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. Vanessa Cárdenas, and I am a first-generation American. Um, my family is originally from Bolivia. My name is John Yang. I'm Chinese-American. I grew up in Chicago and was born in Taipei, Taiwan. My name is Cindy Smith. I am a Black female. I currently live in Los Angeles, California. And I'm J.J. Green. I'm Black. And this is Colors. Our guest today is Elizabeth Chun Hei Lee. She is the Climate Justice Lead and Executive for Economic and Environmental Justice with the United Methodist Women. We're in the middle of hurricane and wildfire season. The 2020 season was among the deadliest on record, with numerous people losing their homes, lives, and their jobs. And unfortunately, due to the climate crisis, a lot of frontline communities are those who are most likely to be impacted. And those frontline communities are made up of a lot of people of color, black, indigenous, Latino, Asians. There are groups all across the country that are concerned about this. Your group is very concerned about this. Give us a sense of what your biggest concern is right now. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you today. And absolutely, as you say, there is so much that is happening, uh, that is impacting um, all communities and disproportionately impacting communities of color in the United States who are 
often least responsible for the climate crisis and globally as well. Um, we're deeply concerned that in the United States uh, that we are only 4% of the world's population, but 25% of historic emissions or cumulative emissions, and that we are doing very little, unfortunately. Congress has yet to pass ambitious climate legislation. We just had the Supreme Court uh, rule that um, EPA have limited ability in regulating greenhouse gas emissions. And we have a moral obligation in the United States to both reduce our emissions and also support other countries, special countries least responsible but being most impacted to support them in terms of transitioning to uh, a renewable energy economy. We also need to address loss and damages. In the United States in particular, uh, as you said, the harm is happening on communities of color. And so we need to center that. The Biden administration has put out the Justice 40 um, focus saying that funds, 40% of the funds should be directed towards environmental justice communities. We need more of that, but we need legislation and policy to actually help us uh, to address the climate crisis, but to make sure that we are not moving towards essentially moving from one source of energy that's problematic, like fossil fuels, uh, and replacing it with other problematic energy sources, right? So we may not have a climate crisis anymore, but we may have nuclear, which is often in the backs and bodies of indigenous communities like the Navajo Nation, yes. or biomass, which is considered renewable um, by the EU, but that is leading to huge um, cutting of forest in South um, in the southeast, predominantly siding in black communities and being shipped off to Europe and in the name of renewable energy, right? Of course, in some ways it is renewable, trees are renewable, but uh, they are cutting trees, deforesting communities, and um, it has a uh, equivalent, if not more emissions impact as coal. So that's not helping in the climate crisis, but also it is polluting heavy pollution of uh, nitrogen oxide um, okay. and other emissions that are harmful. All right. So let's break this down a little bit. Talk about how this these practices and I've got a few questions I want to ask you today. So um, talk about how this practice is harming these frontline communities, the black and brown people um, and Asians and, and, uh, and Pacific Islanders. Um, how is it harming them and, and, and where is it happening? Climate change is an injustice multiplier or a threat multiplier. And we see that being played out around our racial justice and inequities in the United States. We have the cause of and the results of climate that are impacting communities of color. So we think about number one, fossil fuels are the main source of climate pollution and 79% of the energy we use in the US are from fossil fuels. And these fossil fuel plants are, and facilities are, as well as heavily trafficked roads, are located in communities of color. This has led to more communities of color being impacted with higher exposure than the overall population. A 2018 report from EPA highlighted that in 46 of the states in the United States, African Americans, Hispanic, Asian American, and other minorities are exposed to higher levels of dangerous air pollution than white communities, with African-Americans having 54% exposure 
mm-hmm. more exposure than the original population. So that's just thinking about the cause of climate crisis already having a disproportionate impact on communities of color, especially on their health. But I want to give a second point, and uh, that's with regards to how climate change is directly impacting communities of color around heat and the heat waves that are happening. The history of institutional racism in the United States, and if you think about redlining, <clears throat> race-based discriminatory housing policies, zoning laws, redevelopment projects, and the lack of investment in redlined areas, both public and private, have led to what are known as heat islands. And these heat islands are do not have as many trees, ponds, and soil that help moderate and lower air temperature, but have a lot of concrete, asphalt, building roads, and that do the opposite. What are your thoughts about the Supreme Court's decision? You expressed some disappointment a little earlier, but can you give us some more insight into what your thoughts, deeper thoughts are about that ruling? Of course. The Supreme Court decision in West Virginia versus EPA really signals a major setback in the fight against the climate crisis. It limits EPA's ability to set effective standards needed to reduce greenhouse gas pollution from coal and gas fire power plants. It also raises um, many uncertainties and could impact more than just climate. It could threaten the government's ability to enforce laws surrounding public health, workers' rights, clean air and water, and much more. And it could potentially reduce, result in reduced funding for national clean energy transitions. So what is your what is your organization prepared to do about this ruling? I know I know the ruling essentially is final and you know, but 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 is there a way that you can uh, do something to counteract it or go at this a different way to, to change this this scenario that we're in now? Yes, the, I mean, it is certainly disappointing in terms of the ruling, but Supreme Court is just one arm of our, uh, our system. And there are many ways that both at the federal level and at the state level, things can happen. So we have been advocating for many years now, along with many environmental justice and other organizations, urging, to, urging Congress to pass ambitious climate legislation and funding. And right now, uh, they're still in negotiations. And so we urge Congress really to prioritize ambitious climate funding uh, before uh, this next you know, funding cycle ends. That's one. President Biden can also, as well as EPA, can really set stronger emission standards. And there's still we still have authority within EPA. Uh, so we have been submitting public comments as well. And uh, President Biden could do much more in terms of his own power uh, with the Defense Production Act to really say that there is a climate emergency and that funds need to be redirected towards environmental justice and climate justice concerns. At the state level, states can do a lot. And I think we've seen various governors and others saying they're going to ramp up their climate commitments and protections. And as faith organizations and others, we are urging our state leaders to move forward in making deeper climate and ambition and funding as well. Okay. So um, tell us a little bit more about your organization. Um, I have heard of it, but I don't know a lot about it. Tell us, tell us some more about what you do, what your objectives are, 
um, how you do what you do, uh, and, 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 and what your makeup is. So United Women in Faith, formerly known as United Methodist Women, is a Christian women's faith-based organization. So we have hundreds of thousands of members throughout the United States. So we may be the women that you see in the church pews, organizing bake sales, leading Bible studies, Sunday schools. Uh, women, or, women like my mother. Yes, and um, or who are, some would say, the backbone of the church or organizing uh, actions as well. And so we have a common goal of putting faith into action. Two of our social priorities are climate justice and the other is ending mass incarceration and racial justice is actually a through line in all of our work. And we know um, as women of faith and as Christians, we're called to care for God's creation, to care for one another. And the climate crisis in particular is really causing disruption and harm to God's creation, but also to quote unquote, the least of these yeah. in our world and in our country as well. Elizabeth, how can you get people's attention to, to focus on this? Because one of the problems that I often run into, you know, in, in, in my own work as a national security correspondent on a daily basis is trying to get people to focus on dangerous things. And people right now, to me, they seem to be so caught up in their social media and in their devices. How how are you, what, 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 what tactics are you using to get people to focus on this climate thing? Because we've been at this for decades and it's really hard to get people to understand that, look, what you're doing is killing the planet until it happens. So what are you doing and how are you making a difference? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it begins with starting from knowing our audience and what are our concerns and passions and core values. And so for us, we often talk in our faith context about what are our core values that guide us. And so that might be justice or being fair or caring for my neighbors. And from there, thinking about the things that we care about, whether it's air pollution or health or my family or our neighborhood. Um, and from there, making those connections with climate. So for example, uh, we have a just energy for all campaign, basically inviting individuals think about our own energy use and consumption and seeing the connection, how our energy use and consumption is actually directly connected to supporting the fossil fuel industry uh, that is then leading to the climate crisis. So part of it is recognizing that and then seeing, okay, I'm directly connected, but it's not only harming the planet, because I think sometimes if you think about like parts per million or 1.5, it seems so abstract. Uh, but we talk about it also in terms of who it's impacting and air pollution and air pollution impact is very concrete saying that you know my child who rides a school bus like over 20 million students in the united states is riding uh, most likely a diesel school bus and children riding on diesel school buses are five to 15 times more exposed to air pollutants that leads to asthma uh, triggering asthma, developmental issues, and also can impact their uh, performance at school as well. Uh, many of us have um, different health-related concerns, so it's really seeing those connections and seeing how the things I love, things I care about, 
is being impacted by the climate crisis and what I can do. And I think there's, uh, for some, a deep sense uh, of uh, eco-anxiety or despondency, feeling that it is so overwhelming or that the fossil fuel industry and lobbyists, that they've won, mm-hmm. uh, that, that whatever we do will be insufficient. And um, that is a reality I think we just need to acknowledge. And from faith-based communities, uh, and in our faith context, we say, well, we don't do the work just because we're going to win. And we look at other social justice movements or movements as a whole. And those who, who fought, they didn't win after one action. They didn't win after even two actions, but they were faithful because they knew that the work needed to happen, yeah. that uh, our current context was so problematic. So, so uh, also use faith to really uh, both talk about the problems, laments, but also invite us to follow the life of Jesus uh, in many ways was a resistance, right? He yeah. kind of was crucified at the end for his okay. action. And we follow that. So basically, not don't give up. Keep doing the work and keep working at it. Um, so what are some of the things that the average... You've already talked a little bit about some of the things folks should be aware of. Every little bit helps. So what can a family do or a person do to uh, improve the climate situation? Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes we can do even, as you said, every little thing. So reducing our own footprint, absolutely. But it's... But that is insufficient because, again, where is our energy coming from? And so one of the things that we can do very concretely is to reach out to our governors, our senators, our legislators, and, and tell them that climate is a priority and that we need funding. Uh, we may want to look at our own energy uh, energy sources and figure out where it's coming from. Or our public service commissions or public serv- uh, utility commissions and see do we have a renewable portfolio standard in our own uh, town, in our state? And if, if not, why not? And if there is, is it ambitious enough? Uh, especially during the heat waves that will be coming, um, we have a lot of work to do in terms of, uh, I mean, there's an opportunity there. We could bring attention to the harmful impacts that climate is having on Uh, those least responsible, and also put pressure on our government to say, we have to do more. Yeah, that is a very, very good point. Are there any things that I haven't asked you about that you think are important as we look at the work you're doing, first of all, but also look at the problem that you're trying to address as well? When we think about climate, uh, sometimes we, again, think about like big picture or the polar bears, et cetera. Um, and I'm grateful that there's, there's more attention around climate justice and the disproportionate impact on communities of color. But I think we also need to look at it in terms of the gender disparities that exist. 80% of women, of people who are displaced are women around the world and women are being disproportionately impacted. And I think about the United States itself. Hurricane Katrina was just an example where um, Women only made up 54% of the population, uh, but 80% of those who were left in the city following the storm were women. And in many cases, because they lacked the means to leave. And uh, FEMA and emergency planning design had not thought that 
individuals would not have uh, private transportation or money, right, uh, to pay for gas, et cetera. Then when there was redevelopment, 83% um, of single mothers were unable to return home after Katrina for full two years. And then two thirds of jobs were lost by women because most of the jobs available were for construction and building efforts. So looking at the gender lens as well, I think is really important in terms of where are funds being directed? We know that there will be more disasters. Is there a gender analysis and response to that? There's also increased gender-based violence after a natural disaster, both domestically and around the world. And are there appropriate support mechanisms for women who are trying to leave situations of violence as well? Well, you have done a magnificent job of breaking down the complexities of climate issues and problems and how they impact uh, the frontline communities, which just, as you've mentioned a couple of times, just so happen to be people of color. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I really think our audience should focus on um, is exactly what you were getting at with the, every little thing counts, but putting that pressure on people who can make things happen. Because one of the things that's very unfortunate that I've learned about over time is a lot of people that are in those positions don't do anything because we don't put enough pressure on them. And a part of the reason they don't do anything is because their real objective is to just make enough money, to gain enough fame, to live above the chaos that everybody else has to deal with. So in other words, they just use these positions that they have for just to, to garner prestige. So we need to hold them accountable and make them do the work they're supposed to do. And I think that's what you and your organization are doing. So thank you again. Thank you. And there are so many organizations that are doing that work. And if individuals are wondering, how can I get involved? I think one of the best things to do is to Google even environmental justice organizations in your own state and support those efforts that are happening. Uh, because sometimes, you know, the enemy is the isolation that we feel or the despondency. And once we connect with others doing that work, the people power that we can build, uh, that will really uh, lead to the political pressure, as you said, that is needed to bring about change in our policy. Well, Elizabeth, thank you again. It has been a great pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks so much. Stay tuned for some thoughts about race in America and details about our next guest. You're listening to Colors. My name is Elena Fortney. I am Hispanic American and I live in Ashburn, Virginia. My story takes place from 2016 at the height of the presidential election. At the time, I was worried about the phrase, build the wall a slogan coined by the Trump campaign in reference to border security between the U.S. and Mexico. I thought about my mother, brother, and sister, who immigrated from Panama in the 80s and became naturalized citizens. I was hurt by the idea that my mother's citizenship could be questioned because of her accent or appearance, even after 30 years of being an American citizen. A friend of mine was confused about my concern and innocently asked why my mother would ever have to worry if she hadn't committed a crime. That day, we went to a grocery store in Arlington, Virginia, where something unexpected happened. A white man approached us, accompanied by a female. 
He made a hand gesture, mimicking the shape of a gun, pointing it at my face, and said, BAM. We stood there in shock as they walked away, the woman profusely apologetic for the man's behavior. My friend wanted to go after him, but I stopped her. If this man was comfortable enough to pretend to shoot me in the head, I did not want to find out what he would do when provoked. After we left the store, I turned to my friend and said what happened back there is exactly why I'm worried and why everyone should be worried. I am saddened to see the surge in racism that has taken place across America. What I find most heartbreaking is that the fear and discomfort I felt in that single moment is something that minorities struggle with every day. We have a responsibility to stand up for each other. We need to stand against hate. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. If you have any questions or comments about Colors, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. My name is Vanessa Cárdenas, and I am a first-generation American. Um, my family is originally from Bolivia. My name is John Yang. I'm Chinese-American. I grew up in Chicago and was born in Taipei, Taiwan. My name is Cindy Smith. I am a Black female. I currently live in Los Angeles, California. And I'm J.J. Green. I'm Black. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors... Associate Professor Dakota Irby at the University of Illinois at Chicago has written a book called Stuck Improving. And here's some of what he's found. We know, for example, that students throughout in large segments of the country are being denied access to, for example, like African-American history. Um, I grew up in South Carolina. I live in Chicago now. You know, uh, my children can be in a classroom and they can read, you know, black history and talk about black history. Um, people here can critique, um, you know, Columbus Day. Uh, and in fact, here they adopted Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, and But there's other areas of the country where children are being systematically denied access to their own history. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. I want to thank you, everybody, for being with us and uh, lending us your ear. I want to thank Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Joel Oxley, Julia Ziegler. I want to thank Rose Varner Gaskins. Thanks to the Core family. Thank you to Gina Bazemore, Cortland Cox. Thank you, Thetford Collins. Thanks to Jennifer Farmer, Nanda DeSue. And for the music, thank you to Offshane. Thank you as well to Jesse Gallagher and to Cosmic. And most of all, thank you for listening. And just remember, Keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast DC, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.